Good morning, everybody. Shannon already introduced me. My name is Kevin Weed. I'm one of the elders here. It's been, been a great weekend. Sun's been out, shining. We got food waiting, right? Everybody ready for that? I can't wait for you to hear the message next Sunday morning. It's, it, it's going to be really great. I, I recently learned a very valuable lesson. It was actually during D-Now weekend. I was fortunate enough to have Brian Rowe ask me to speak to the students that Saturday. And I, and I got to start by telling you that the energy that those students had, it was incredible. I showed up and I, I was surprised. I didn't think that they were going to bring it that strong, but, but they did. That Friday evening, I, I dropped in to listen to Duncan Dotson speak to the students. And I'm so glad that I did because, man... He is an incredibly gifted communicator. I remember sitting down in my seat as he started to speak to the kids, and I was like, oh, okay. he's pretty good. That quickly, quickly changed into, I don't know if I want to follow him up tomorrow, <laughs> which then quickly changed into, I got to find a way out of showing up tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, I went and talked to Lindsay, Stanley wasn't available, and so I ended up having to, having to pull that shift for them, unfortunately. Shannon talked to me about being out a couple of consecutive weeks so that he could uh, prepare for the table and for Easter. And I was gracious because he asked me what weekend I wanted and what text I wanted to cover. I only had one question for him. Who was covering the other weekend? The smile on his face before he actually spoke the words, Duncan Dotson, it told me everything I needed to know. It was easy for me to make a decision. I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. So you guys are stuck with me today. But definitely come back next week. We're going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. We see Jesus here. He is still in his extended discourse on Old Testament law. You could say that he was really trying to drive to the heart of the matter of Old Testament law. Shannon referenced last week that, that he's doing so partly because the religious leaders at that time uh, felt like their hearts were exempt from it. Some of you, as you turn your Bibles there, you might see a big word at the top in bold that says retaliation. We live in a world and a culture that has romanticized retaliation. We've heard things like, I don't get mad, I get even. I'll be back. That's a good one, right? Go ahead, make my day. Those are some quotes from our friends in Hollywood who have helped us romanticize retaliation and revenge. And I'm not sure that there's any secular music genre that could exist if they had to remove retaliation and revenge from their lyrics. Anyone been watching the Senate confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court seat? Exciting for some of you, mind-numbing for others. A little over a year ago, then-President Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland for the vacant Supreme Court seat uh, that was left open by the late Anthony Scalia. With a little bit more than nine months remaining in the Obama presidency, the Senate Republicans, right, wrong, or indifferent, refused to even consider him. When Donald Trump was elected, he nominated Neil Gorsuch for the vacancy. Shortly uh, after that, President, former President Obama was asked if he thought that Senate Democrats would give Gorsuch a fair hearing. And this was his response. The notion the Democrats would then say, oh, well, we'll just go along with that. That is inconceivable, right? The job of the Senate is to conduct a fair hearing to gauge the qualifications and character for the job. It's not to go tit for tat with other folks in retaliation for something else that's taken place. 
I'm not picking political sides here because the elephant and the donkey are both wrong. But that's the world that we allow our politicians to operate in. Let's take a look at what Jesus had to say about retaliation here in the text. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We see four very common illustrations here. Turning the other cheek, giving someone the shirt off your back, going the extra mile, and lending to one who asks. Those are all things that most of you have probably heard before. We're going to focus on two of those four. Turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. Context in Scripture is always important. But we're going to pay particular attention to it here because this is one of the more misapplied and misrepresented texts in Scripture. The words eye for an eye appear in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and they're commonly referred to as the lex talionis. Lex is Latin for law, talionis for retaliation. So literally it means law of retaliation. The law was intended to limit violence and bloodshed. It's still recognized today as the foundation for the civil justice system and international law. When we go back to the Old Testament references It's important that we understand who the intended audience was when the words eye for an eye were spoken. God's audience was not individual people, but the nation of Israel. If you happen to be interested in the biblical basis for capital punishment and why Christians consider a fetus a person in the abortion debate, you can find some of that in the Old Testament text that reference an eye for an eye. The intent of Lex Talionis was to provide a framework for solving civil disputes. It was never intended to solve personal disputes. It taught that the punishment must match the crime and be solved and carried out by civil authorities. It was not a license for us to take matters into our own hands and to amp up or even the score with people. However, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees twisting an eye for an eye to justify their personal retaliation which I think is the way that most of us probably twist that today as well. I think it's why we see Jesus challenge us here in Matthew chapter 5 on what a Christian's attitude should be as we respond to personal insults and mistreatment. As we look at verse 39, we see it tell us that we're not to resist the one that is evil, and we should turn the other cheek, which in this context means that we're not to set ourselves against or retaliate against an evil person, somebody who would insult us or mistreat us. I want to be very clear. Complete non-resistance to evil is not what is being referred to here. Scripture tells us that governments are ordained by God to use force to resist evil if necessary, as are we as people if the evil being referenced is holistic and not a personal incident. When Jesus speaks of a slap to the right cheek, he's not talking about a physical attack or being hit hard. No one should have to endure physical abuse. No one should feel like they can't come to the defense or the aid of others. If I'm in a position to come to the defense or aid of my family, I'm going to do so with all of my mental and physical abilities. Among Jews or most people in the Middle East, even today, a slap or even touching of the face is considered one of the most demeaning, humiliating things that somebody can do. Jesus doesn't want us to render evil for evil, but he also doesn't call us to do nothing. 
There's a call here for us not just to ignore and walk away from people who might insult us, but to turn the other cheek. Let's think for a second about the most insulting or demeaning thing that somebody could say or do to you. Question your ability as a spouse or a parent. Comment on your weight or physical appearance. Attack your character or question your work ethic. For some of us, we're we're much more simple people than that. You can just cut us off in traffic. Maybe leave us off the list of people that get that birthday invitation. What's our natural response to those things? Our natural response to those things is to harm people the same way that they've harmed or offended us. It's what our culture tells us. It tells us to get defensive, to return insult for insult, anger for anger, and ultimately evil for evil in what is usually an emotional-driven response. Anytime that you have a response that's driven by emotion, it's going to be prone to overreaction. Those of us that have kids see this in behavior and their behavior, essentially from birth. When Emma hits Avery, Avery hits Emma back, puts a little bit more on it. When Emma raises her voice at Avery, Avery raises her voice right back at Emma. That's an example I think most of us can understand, especially of those of us that are parents. But I think it downplays it just a little bit, right? It was an example with kids. Kids are cute. My kids are cute. Innocent. Right? I hope they stay innocent. But I don't think that even scratches the surface of the damage that we can see the cycle of retaliation do. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit more of a pointed example. Friday evening, about 10.15, I got a phone call. I actually missed it. I was exhausted. It's, it's been a pretty challenging week for our family. It always is. Jessica can be the first to attest. Anytime I may be up here doing something like this, the, the two weeks leading up to that are just, they're going to be crazy. That's just the way that it goes. But when I saw the missed call, uh, I looked at it, and it was from somebody that I knew was calling me that, that had something important to tell me, and I had to call and make sure that everything was okay. This is somebody that's really close to us. They, uh, he lived with us a few years ago when he was going through some challenges in his marriage. We'd just seen he and his now ex-wife just go to battle with each other, tit for tat tear down for tear down Jessica and I as we tried to work with them through it we just we we tried to talk to them to try to get them to see what that cycle of retaliation was doing to them and they they just couldn't see it there was always justification and that justification was always at the other end of their finger pointing right back at the other person we hoped and we prayed that that crazy cycle would stop but it didn't they decided that divorce would fix their problems But it didn't. They have a son and they share custody. The retaliation cycle hasn't just continued, but it's escalated. The three-hour phone conversation I had Friday evening was hearing about how that's resulted in a restraining order that he received that afternoon. Can't see his son. Resulted in a 10-year-old boy who two months ago on his birthday was asked the one thing he wanted And he said, I just want my parents to be able to get along. Retaliation doesn't deliver justice. It just contributes to that cycle that keeps our wounds open and fresh. This is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to keep that going. Retaliation doesn't provide closure. 
In fact, I think it does the opposite because it plays to our pride and our selfishness. When someone wrongs us, it's easy to think that they owe us something. And we have a desire to collect on that debt. We're really good at that. The source of our response are the two sins that we refer to as pride and anger. I don't know anything about those two things. This is evident in some of our thought process. We judge ourselves on our intent, but we judge others on their actions. We want justice for others, but not for us. We'll think or say things like, who do they think they are? I'm not a doormat. Someone's not going to insult me and get away with it like that. What goes around comes around. I've heard that a lot. My personal favorite, they need to get what they deserve. But do they? Is making sure people get what they deserve our job? It's God's job. We're going to read these words from Paul from Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think we should leave justice to a just God. It may not be when we want it, and it may not be how we want it, but he will make sure that justice gets done. This is challenging for us, isn't it? It's challenging because we battle a desire to be the one that's in a position of power and authority and control. Those are things that we just don't want to let go. We want and have a desire to be the judge and the jury and the executioner. It's so important for us to be right or feel important that we see retaliation as something that can provide us with both purpose and pleasure. But does it? Does it provide us purpose and pleasure? When we, when we retaliate, I think in the first few moments, we feel good. We feel rewarded. But instead of that hostility actually dying down, it prolongs the pain of the original offense. Not to mention the time and the mental energy, how draining that is, that we put into just the thought of how we're actually going to get back at somebody. Regardless of how justified or right we think we might be, we have to remember and remind ourselves that this isn't a contest and this isn't a game. By getting even or amping it up, you haven't won anything. The reality is, you've just lost part of your witness. Many of you know that I am a very proud former Marine. And there are some memories from that season of my life that are seared in my brain. I remember the day that I left for boot camp. It was October 15th, which is now very bittersweet for me because my 12-year-old Emma was born on October 15th of 2004. I left for boot camp on October 15th of 1996. I remember being at the airport and my recruiter telling me something before I left. And I think it was actually one of the few things he told me that was actually true. But he said, don't volunteer for anything. 
So I remember getting on the plane. The flight took me from DFW to Nashville to Oklahoma City to San Diego. That's part of the way they start to disorient you before you even get there. In addition to the fact that the government's paying for your ticket. And so I think my ticket was like $7 because I went all over the country. I'll never forget arriving at Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego and sitting on this bus in the middle of the night, exhausted, until the drill instructor stepped on that bus. And, and, and the world literally stood still in that moment while he glared at us with eyes barely visible under that distinctive campaign cover that drill instructors wear. And then he told us to get off his bus. We didn't know it was his bus, but it was certainly his bus. And he said it with a voice that had an intensity and decibel level that was off the charts. And people and bodies and stuff started moving. People's bodies were moving fast because their minds couldn't process what we were being told quickly enough. It was pure, beautiful, extremely well-orchestrated chaos. And in that moment, one of the drill instructors said, I need a volunteer. And apparently every recruiter tells people before they leave not to volunteer for anything because we all just stopped and froze and we looked at each other wild-eyed. Not a single hand went in the air. Which is when I got a very quick down and dirty lesson on the concept of being voluntold when there's no volunteer. And this brings us to our second illustration from verse 41. Jesus says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Going the extra mile. I wonder how many atheists and agnostics are a fan of that saying who have no idea that it was something that Jesus actually said. I can't even start to go down that path because I will, I will digress way too much. In Jesus' day, Roman soldiers had the authority to force Jews to carry their load for one mile. It was something that they had learned from the Persians and it was a privilege that they had abused. The law was clear and quite strict. It said that somebody had to carry the Roman stuff for one mile, but then they were free to go. The Jews being experts at the letter of the law, measured the mile in steps. It was 1,000. And they counted them every step of the way. When they got to 1,000, they stopped, put down the Roman stuff, and left the Roman to carry his own kit, or more than likely, just find another victim to do it. I wouldn't expect anybody to like forced labor or being voluntold. I think of the four illustrations that we see in the text this morning, for me at least, going the extra mile is the one that I've heard the most and that I'm most familiar with. But then I have to ask myself, if it's the one I'm most familiar with, why is it so hard? And I think it's difficult because going the extra mile requires us to put aside our pride and our self-interest. And that's difficult for us because every day we wake up, we want to believe that we can be entirely self-sufficient. It was with a mixture of fear and excitement that Jessica and I bought some property in North Rockwall a couple of years ago. I say fear because we, we've never been property owners. And for those of you that know us well, you know that we are not the handiest of people. As a matter of fact, we are not handy at all, which is problematic when you own property. We can outsource stuff in Wood Creek. That's relatively easy to do. But when you've got acreage, it, again, it just becomes really, really problematic 
When Jessica and I went out to the property, uh, one of the first times we met our neighbor to the north, Mr. Justice, and it took him about 30 seconds to figure out that we were in way, way over our head. Every few weeks we would go out there to get some work done and every day we would go out there, no matter what day we would decide to go, Mr. Justice would always be on the property, tackling our biggest projects without us even mentioning them, probably because I didn't even know what the biggest projects were to tell him what to go do, even if he'd have been willing to go do it, if he'd have told me that. Fixing the fence line, all 11 acres, done. Relocating brush piles, knocking down trees to clear paths, done. Rusty gate that needed to be fixed that I had no idea what what to do, done. And it wasn't just us. He hit the basics on our property and then we'd see him driving around the rest of the, the neighbor's places fixing their stuff. I asked Brady, the guy that I bought our land from, what was up with Mr. Justice? Because, I mean, it was so countercultural that I couldn't get my head around it. It wasn't like that he was retired or didn't have anything to do. He had a family and a job, just like all of us. And Brady just laughed at me. He said, man, that's Scott just being a blessing. We may or may not always like the things that we're called to do, but we're called to have a humble servant's heart. We're called to love God and love people and to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily. That's what a disciple of Jesus does. When someone hurts or insults us or treats us poorly, we have a choice. We can respond by trusting in ourselves, potentially jumping on to that cycle of retaliation that just leaves everybody hurt. Or we can have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in the truth of His Word, And we can return those things with love and service. Those are our options. Keep the cycle going of retaliation and bitterness or loving and serving God's people. Any of you guys remember those WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? I'll be fully transparent with you guys. I never really understood that whole thing. I'm not saying that it's wrong or bad. If any of you are wearing one, you can see Shannon after we talk about it here in just a second. But for me, the concept of what would Jesus do was difficult. But what wasn't difficult was knowing what Jesus had done. I'll read these words from 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly. Jesus was mocked, savagely tortured, humiliated in every conceivable way, and crucified. The suffering and crucifixion of Christ show us the most extreme evil situation that anyone has ever been through. He voluntarily surrendered to the will of his Father. To die on that cross. Because that was the only way that we could be released from our sin and its consequences. His death was an exchange for our opportunity to live eternally connected to him. I picked being here this weekend to dodge Duncan. 
But the reality is, it had nothing to do with him. As I prayed and I studied through the text, I was so convicted. Just thinking about how poorly I can respond to people sometimes. I can go zero to a hundred in .8 seconds with the most negative and critical spirit, even when somebody hasn't even really offended me. With my family, people I work with, some of you. I've reflected on recent conversations I've had over the course of the past month, even when people have come at me hard or even potentially offensive, and just thought about the way that I responded, and I'm well aware of the fact that they didn't see Jesus in my response. I've been in the perfect position to go the extra mile with people, and I have blown right by it. I'm a busy guy. Important things to do. I'm important. Got stuff going on. Trust me. I'm a pro at counseling other people with this. If you guys could have heard me on the phone Friday evening, I was in a zone. I mean, I was telling him. I was reading it down for him. What's that saying? Those that can't do, teach. Maybe some of you are struggling with this too. Maybe some of you are caught up in the cycle of retaliation with somebody. Maybe even just a a retaliation of silence. Maybe some of you work for or work with somebody who continually makes you do things that you don't have to do. It isn't your job. You recognize what Jesus has done and you want to live it out, but you find yourself sticking to that, re- that, that retaliation and just responding poorly and not relating well and working well with people. Where does it start? Where does it start to help you get out of that? What do you do? It starts with prayer. I can actually see a couple of you people shaking your head at me as I said that. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Every time you get up there, we... Everything always starts with prayer. Yes. Yes, it does. We have to pray for the people who offend us. We have to pray for ourselves, for the strength and discernment to respond well in these situations. And we have to pray and ask for forgiveness when we fall short. And we will fall short. I know it's hard, for me at least, not to feel weak or even shame sometimes when I don't respond the the way that I know is the the God-honoring way to respond. We have to remind ourselves that in our weakness, His grace is sufficient. And even when we fall short, we have the opportunity to show people how Christianity is countercultural by the way that we own it. And we own it through repentance and asking for forgiveness from the people that we've offended and from the God and the creator of the universe. It's through prayer and with the help of the Holy Spirit that we can be the change and the hope and the light that our communities need. There's one thing that we have the opportunity to do here on earth that we won't have in heaven, 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 heaven. One thing, and it's introducing people 
to Jesus. Loving and serving God verbally and visually and His people are the most important things that we do. Frankly, loving and serving, loving and serving God and people are the only things that matter. They're the foundation of our faith and they are our mission. If you're sitting in this room today and you identify yourself as a Christian, you're living on mission. Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is either a mercenary, mercenary, don't be a mercenary, be a missionary for Jesus, is either a missionary or an imposter. And that may be offensive to some of you, but should it be? I think most of us in our head, we have this idea of what a missionary is. It's somebody who takes the gospel to unreached people groups in far foreign lands. And that that definition is not necessarily inaccurate, but I would say that it's very limiting and incomplete. That would make it seem to think that missionaries are just a chosen few who decide to give up everything and serve God. They return home occasionally, talk about the really wonderful things that God is doing in their ministry, and they raise funds. We see people do this, and we know that they're a blessing. People like John Graham and others. I know there are people sitting out here that have done that type of missionary work. But I believe that Scripture makes it very clear that every follower of Jesus is on mission. It's not just the job of professionals. It's part of the identity of every follower of Christ. Think about how much time we spend with our families and in our life groups and here on Sunday about the way that we can love and serve people. And normally the image that we get in our head are these really big things. Let's go rebuild a house. Let's go do a service project. But one thing those things have in common are those are things that we plan for that can be done when it's somewhat convenient for us. But that's not the reality about the way that we always get the opportunity to love and serve people. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those things are great. But turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, being put in those positions are often going to be things that we have to react to. They aren't things that we can always plan for. The best way that we can love and serve people is by the way that we extend grace and mercy to them. Because of the way that mercy and grace have been extended to us. We're living on mission when we demonstrate these things in the way that we respond to people and the things that we say and in the things that we do. Even in the things that we do when we don't have a choice. Before we close, here in a few minutes, and it's actually going to be just a few minutes. I want to talk about those two things for just a second. Mercy and grace. Essential characteristics of Christianity. We hear them every week. Sometimes people use them interchangeably, but what do those words really mean? Let's start with a quick definition to make sure that we get everybody on the same page. Mercy is deliverance from judgment or not getting what we deserve. Mercy is what led God to transfer our sin to His Son. The Beatitudes tell us that the merciful are blessed and will receive mercy. While the opposite of being merciful is being merciless, which is cruel, heartless, and unforgiving. Here's another quote that I like from Spurgeon on mercy. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. 
As we are by nature, justice condemns us. Holiness frowns upon us. Power crushes us. Truth confirms the threatening of the law and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of our God that all of our hopes begin. Grace is kindness to the unworthy, unmerited favor, or getting what we don't deserve. It has nothing to do with us or anything that we can do. Rescued from judgment by God's mercy, grace is anything and everything above and beyond that mercy. Understanding mercy and grace are important. But unless we can move beyond the knowledge and understanding of mercy and grace and move to the practical application of it, we'll never point anyone to Jesus. Without these things, without mercy and grace, no one can be saved. Without mercy and grace, no one can stay saved. And without mercy and grace, no one can grow as a Christian. Every breath that we take is an act of God's mercy and grace. We do these things, not in order to earn acceptance by God, but because we already have acceptance by God, and because we want to bring honor and glory to Him in all that we do. At the Last Supper, Jesus was in the same room with a bunch of people that were about to betray Him, deny Him, and desert Him. And He knew it. He was surrounded by a bunch of guys that didn't deserve his love, they didn't deserve his mercy, and they didn't deserve his grace. And what did he do? He washed their feet. Jesus' words in our text this morning, they strike at the heart of our selfishness. They remind us to value others more than ourselves, and they give us concrete and consistent ways that we can do that. By turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. I want to challenge everybody here this morning, church. The biggest knocks on Christians and the church is that we don't practice what we preach. We've all heard it. There may be some of you sitting in here that, that think it. But we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to dispel that. Not with perfection. We all know that we're never going to be perfect. For the people that have perfection as a goal, they're missing the point. My family, we're so grateful for the Redeemer Church family that's been here. That's extended mercy and grace and love and forgiveness to us when we don't deserve it. My challenge for everyone sitting here this morning is to take that mercy and grace and love and forgiveness that we talk about and that we sing about and that we share in here with each other. And we take that and we translate it into the way that we love and serve people the rest of the days of the week. The way that we respond to people, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with them. The way that we respond to people should be based entirely on the risen Christ. And His mercy and His grace. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are, we are so grateful for the mercy and the grace and the love and the forgiveness that You've extended to us when we don't deserve it. And Father, I pray just for everybody here that, the, that those wouldn't be things and words that we keep to ourselves, 
but that we would live on mission in action and in truth to take those things into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and into our marriages. I pray that you would give us the courage to extend those things to people when they are saying things that want to make us turn and run. But Father, you didn't call us to turn and run. You didn't call us to stand still. You called us to turn the other cheek. You called us to extend additional opportunities. And I pray, God, that the people of Redeemer Church would step into that. I pray that as people look and see what takes place here, that they wouldn't be attracted to it because they think it's just a great group of really awesome people or fun activities. But God, I pray that Redeemer Church could be that light that this community so desperately needs because of the way that we love you, love others, and extend mercy and grace to them. Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.